Just a note at the top, we recorded this about a week ago, and it being a fast-moving situation means that already some of what we said is probably a little out of date. Um, For example, I'm now recording this pickup from under a blanket in my storage closet. And the markets are struggling, to say the least. We hope that this episode will be an opportunity to reflect on the cultural effects of coronavirus and take your mind off of it a little bit completely. Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Murray-Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. A lot of writing about women having casual sex is kind of associated with self-hatred and disgust. And I wanted to think about it in a different way, that actually there are lots of middle-aged women who go to hotels who have sex with men who don't hate themselves as a result of it. Today, things are a bit different. I am in my living room at home with our podcast producer, (laughs) Lena, and we have created for ourselves a fortress of pillows and duvets in order to try and make a makeshift studio here because the FT's actual (laughs) audio studio is closed as a coronavirus precaution. I'm like laughing over here, even though it's not funny, but it all feels so absurd and kind of spooky. I am in the New York newsroom in our audio studio. There is almost nobody here but me. (laughs) Our office is also closing soon as a coronavirus precaution. And uh, yeah, it's feeling a little apocalyptic around here. We're going to be discussing exactly this today, how coronavirus is already affecting life and culture, and also kind of thinking about what its longer term impacts might be. As usual, we're also going to have an interview this week. Our guest is the Irish writer Emer McBride, who you heard in the intro. And Chris, maybe you can tell everybody a little bit more about Emer. Yeah. So Emer, I think, is a rare thing. She's a novelist who's both extremely popular and genuinely experimental. I think mm. she's really doing new things with the novel form and breaking the boundaries of what it can be. Her first book was called A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. You may recognise the title. It was really like a publishing phenomenon. And Ima and I spoke about lots of things, including how she dealt with that success, as well as grief, her training at acting school and how that affected her writing, and also uh, middle-aged sex. We should also probably say that she came out with a new book recently. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Her new book is called Strange Hotel. Um, So we also spoke about how strange hotels are. And middle-aged sex as it relates to strange hotels. Yes, yes. Yeah. She also has a very beautiful Irish accent that I could like very much melt into and make Mm, a home in. So we think that you'll really enjoy it. Um, So here we are. Join us in this COVID journey. Thank you all, as usual, for all of your thoughts on Instagram and by email and Twitter. We actually have a special request for you this episode. Yes, we are conducting a survey about the show. Basically, we want to know what you like most and least, what else you listen to, whether you think the podcast is too long or too short or perfect. Basically, um, help us develop this show for you. But don't be too mean when you give us feedback. (laughs) Please be nice. (laughs) Also, if you do fill it out, you might be the lucky person who wins a pair of Bose wireless headphones so that you can hear us crystal clear. I also want a pair of Bose wireless headphones, so part of me wants to fill out my own survey. Not sure that's allowed. Yeah, that's totally not allowed. Anyway, you can all find it at ft.com slash culturecallsurvey. So ahead of time, thank you so much for filling it out. We appreciate you, and on with the show. Yeah, so we're recording this, as we do, about a week before it goes out. And right now the atmosphere feels pretty weird in London. I've noticed, for example that no one is touching the handrails on the tube. Yeah. Just little things are are slightly off. And also it feels emptier. Are you sensing that in New York, Lila? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's really strange. I mean, the the subway's a lot quieter. If you go to the supermarket, the canned goods aisles are totally empty. I went to Trader (laughs) Joe's and actually they were out of tilapia, frozen tilapia, which I mentioned as my recommendation a couple weeks ago. So honestly, that makes me feel like I'm an influencer. (laughs) 
<laughs> or it could <laughs> be actually, coronavirus. Who knows? <laughs> honestly, but all the other fishes were available. So I'm going to give myself this one. <laughs> anyway, the other weird thing that happened, relatedly, is I was moderating a discussion on Sunday at the Independent Art Fair, which is a smaller art fair in Tribeca. And it kind of feels more like an exhibition than a convention. It's a very nice experience. Um, the panel was about how technology is changing the art world. And, you know, coronavirus was a big topic of discussion because people would look at each other and they would start to shake hands and then say, oh, I'm not shaking hands right now or, mm. oh, I'll risk it or air kissing <laughs> or I don't know, sort of the fist bumping. Or it was sort of that sort of that awkward exchange mm. became even more awkward. I feel like the art world loves to air kiss anyway. So probably that's exactly <laughs> it kind of worked for them. So, yeah, because so much is being canceled or postponed, like South by Southwest and the Venice Biennale and the London Book Fair, Art Basel in Hong Kong has been canceled. And, you know, not to mention like tons of universities for the rest of the semester. Mm. All of that happening has made for a rich discussion about what this means about the future. But the question on our minds was in that panel, what would these events look like online? Like, yeah. how is this going to change these events? Would it even be possible to have the experience of it online? And, you know, what can the Internet replace? Mm. Like, definitely not everything. Yeah, I mean, so much of, you know, the things that we talk about on this podcast, the things that we that come under the bracket of culture, they involve going out and being in the same space as other people, whether that's at a gig mm. or at the cinema or a restaurant or the theatre. And I think that kind of live communal quality, I mean, it just can't be replicated online, can it? Yeah, you know, it reminds me of our conversation that we had last month with the trend forecaster, Emily Siegel, uh, who mm. talked about the experience economy. Yeah, yeah. And she was saying how rich people, collectors, entrepreneurs, you know, can just hop from art fair to Biennale to Fashion Week to Burning Man. And they can do that like over and over through the course of the year until they die <laughs> and never really <laughs> land. But that's unsustainable environmentally and otherwise. And coronavirus is sort of forcing this weird change upon all of us. Mm. So my theory is kind of that coronavirus may be like mandating FOMO. Mm, interesting. So the fear of missing out. Yeah, the fear of missing out. It's like making us more comfortable with the idea of missing out entirely because everything in our calendar is up for grabs. Yeah, I, th I think that's really interesting. But I think the idea of missing out, that's not great for culture, is it? I mean, in the short term. <laughs> no. I've received as many emails about events being cancelled or spaces closing temporarily because of coronavirus than about sort of cultural events happening and being announced, which is like the usual format that the press releases I receive take. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens longer term. Maybe rich people will just continue to jet around going to film festivals um, and nothing will change, really. But I right. don't know. I mean, yes, I'm sure that's going to be true for some people, but I feel like this is a big enough thing that something might change. Right. One of my favorite writers at the FT, Henry Mance, uh, wrote this really great piece in FT Weekend about yes. how coronavirus, you remember it, yeah, yeah, about how coronavirus may be forcing us to reset. And we'll put it in the show notes. But basically he said that by disrupting our lives and causing like real tragedy, it's also introducing unpredictability into the way that we think. Mm. We've known about antibiotic resistance. We've known about rising sea levels. We've known about trade wars. But these things feel like distant threats. And coronavirus is very real. Yeah. And, you know, if we can accept canceled events and close schools now for a couple of weeks or a month or maybe more, I don't know, maybe we can accept restraint in the future as we'll probably need to again. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I feel two things. Like, one, I feel that this is awful. The loss of life is awful. The effect on the economy is awful. The pressure on small businesses and People who can't afford childcare mm. is awful. <laughs> um, I wish I had better adjectives, but it just is yeah. crap. You know, the way it disproportionately affects poor people is really rough. It sucks. <laughs> I don't know which words I can use. <laughs> Ugh, it's awful. Um, but it also feels kind of significant at the same time to watch people and habits change on such a huge scale, like watch the whole globe respond. Yeah. Um, people are adapting to this new reality very quickly, and we're kind of all in this together. And it feels kind of like the young are staying home to help protect the old and the sort of weaker immune. There's kind of a community aspect to it that gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I love that piece by Henry. And he says that coronavirus is an epidemic for our times because yeah. it, it kind of taps into these specific 
fears that we have. And I think the thing is that you were saying things are changing and we are adapting, but I think it's not not painful in a way. It's like this dawning realisation that despite all the advancement, all the money, all the technology, despite everything that we have, this I'm talking specifically about people in the West, Yeah. Um, that, that actually there are these forces beyond our control and we're already having to adapt to them. You know, people hundreds of years ago knew this. People in lots of other parts of the world have known this for a long time. Mm-hmm. But we're just finding this out now and it feels kind of seismic, I think. Right. It's very stark to hear this compared over and over to the Spanish influenza of 1918. Mm. I mean, <laughs> maybe that is the last time that we've had an experience together like this. I don't know. Coming back to the immediate present, mm-hmm. we've also been thinking about the things that are thriving in these new times, like hand sanitizer and video conferencing <laughs> providers. And anyway, there's so much we can talk about. Um, but if we really want to keep it on culture, then really the number one thing on our mind is Netflix. Like Netflix is one of the few brands benefiting from the coronavirus because it's one of the things that we can all do in isolation. We can do it alone together just using the Internet. And. And you would think that people would be watching Planet Earth or sci-fi apocalyptic future films, but it seems like we're all just watching Love is Blind. So I'm probably the last person alive who's not watching Love is Blind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I'm conscious that we are a bit late to this, let alone um, you not even having seen the first episode concerns me, Grizz. You have a culture (laughs) show. This is the pinnacle of American and British culture. But Love is Blind is the Netflix dating show where people get engaged before having seen each other. Basically, that's the premise. I mean, I am aware of its existence, Lila, um, (laughs) before you slander me too much. It has been all over my Twitter feed for the past few weeks. And I have actually resisted watching it because the premise of the show literally terrifies me. Yeah. Basically, the premise is there is a group of women living in sort of one house and there's a group of men living in another house. They have this area where there are pods where each of them can go on -on one-on-one sort of speed dates with each other, even though they're living separately, and they can't see each other. The pods are separated by a wall that sound can travel through. So in the first two episodes, people pair off, and then everybody goes into super drive. They propose, and then they see each other for the first time, and then they decide whether they want to be together. Then they move in together. Um... They meet each other's families. They get married. The social experiment is basically whether you can fall in love without seeing someone. That is insane to me. Yeah, it's completely nuts. And maybe it's how we'll all be dating in the future. And when I think about Love is Blind, I also think about our podcast, Grizz, and how actually you and I have developed (laughs) a whole relationship sitting in two pods across the ocean from each other. That is very true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But honestly, what I've been thinking about around this is that, you know, there's some likable earnestness in the show and there's some self-awareness that you don't normally see on The Bachelor or Love Island. So maybe I'm wrong. I mean, do you think I should watch it? Yes, you should definitely watch it. Highly recommended. We're all isolated for now. So now's the perfect time. (laughs) Um, I wonder about how these shows, they like, they're all sort of sexist and it reinforces stereotypes about marriage being like this be all end all. Mm. But these places are still very therapeutic to us as a culture. Are we watching ironically? I don't think so. I mean, I'm not watching, so I don't know. Right, that's true. (laughs) I feel like people pretend to be watching Love Island ironically but actually there's not that much that's ironic about it they're genuinely hooked and enjoying it and that's completely under like I get that the thing that I think is funny about it and strange about it in a way is that yeah it's like it's a little bit out of step with like real life in a way isn't it you're kind of retreating to this slightly old school version it's a game show and the goal is to get married that feels there's something quite 1950s housewife about that And it also sort of reminds me of the fairy tales that our culture has been reading and like may start to be phased out. I mean, we read Sleeping Beauty. We read Snow White. We just wanted to sort of Mm. be swept off our feet by some man, some random man that we don't even know that well. (laughs) Because we had our eyes closed and we were asleep the whole time. (laughs) Exactly. Because we were like sexually assaulted. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that that has not aged well. Yeah, but this next generation is learning from Frozen Mm. and from, I don't know, Moana. Like there's a lot more like feminist characters. Maybe maybe it'll change. 
maybe people won't feel nostalgic about the promise of a charming prince. Yeah, and a heteronormative marriage. I think it still has a fairly strong grip. But yeah, I mean, yeah. in a generation's time, who knows? So Grizz, what have you been up to? Well, Lila, you are actually one of the very few people who I've spoken to in the last few days. <laughs> uh, so I don't have coronavirus, but I have been self-isolating this week because I've been ill. I know. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no, it's 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 been rubbish. I've been in bed with a fever for most of the time. <laughs> Pretty much the only thing I have to report that I've been doing is I have read a really good book that came out recently. Um, it's called Weather by Jenny Offill. Uh, I actually started reading it and then I left it on a train. <laughs> How was it? It's great. So Jenny Offill developed a cult following when she published this book called The Department of Speculation in, I think, mm. 2014. And it's autofiction, which we've spoken about on the podcast before. It's like memoir blended with fiction, sort of fictionalized. Right. And it's written in a way unlike anything I've really read before. It's a series of very short paragraphs that feel a bit like fragments at times or kind of a collage almost of post-it notes. Yeah, like moments. The weather was written like that too. Yeah, and they don't necessarily always follow each other. They can kind of dart about in time or something might be a quote from somebody and it's next to something that continues the narrative. Right. But I think it's a bit more narratively driven. It's basically about this woman who's in New York. She's a librarian. She's an assistant to a professor. She's not particularly successful. She's married. She's got a kid. But she's going about her life against the backdrop of of times that feel quite strange, basically. I don't think Trump's name is mentioned, but it's around the time of his election. Mm -hmm. Also, climate change is a big theme because that's what the professor that she works for speaks about. And there's this general kind of atmosphere that just seems to infuse the whole thing that kind of the end of the world is close. You know, they go to this dinner at one point and they meet these millionaires who are prepping for the end of civilization by, <laughs> you know, inventing like floating cities that only very rich people can have access to. Right. But really it's not about millionaires. It's about like a very ordinary family and how they respond to this time on a kind of psychological level. And it's funny, like they're both not coping and at the same time they're just carrying on with their normal lives. Right. Kind of like we are, you know, right yeah. now. Yeah, I was just going to say, sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> really, It's been really strange reading it this week on my own in the house, going on Twitter and reading about coronavirus and then going back to this book where it really could be about an epidemic, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of metaphorically about an epidemic. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really brilliant, basically. But also it's like if you're going to read it, read it now because it feels really pertinent. Yeah. And I was thinking about this because... um. In our roundup episode at the end of last year, we were saying that actually, in terms of climate change, there aren't that many films or novels or artworks that have kind of grappled with climate change in a really powerful way. Right. Like the art around climate change hadn't really caught up. Yeah. And it's mm. like exhibitions about climate change that I've been to have broadly been disappointing. And actually, it was people like Greta Thunberg and like activism that was really making people reconsider things. But I think that this book, Weather, is maybe the first work of fiction that I've read, which, I mean, it's not like I read it and think I must recycle more or I must not fly <laughs> or something. It's not like that obvious, the connection, but it definitely has made me think about how we inhabit our planet, really. Yeah. How we go about at a time where we really can't ignore these things anymore. And yet we do yeah. have to go on living. So what do you do? Okay. Well, I'll never find the book I lost, but I will get it again. I'd like to read it. It sounds really good. You know, it's funny. I'm reading this book called The Companions by Katie M. Flynn, mm. which is also weirdly close to home. I mean, this is like a dystopian novel, but the first scene is in a quarantined San Francisco wow. sometime in the future in the wake of an extremely contagious virus. Wow. Like that's where it's set. Anyway, I'll leave it there. I'm really enjoying it. We will put those recommendations in our show notes. I will also say that our show notes are an exceptional Easter egg of <laughs> the Culture Call experience. Um, there's tons of links in there. We mention it from time to time, but check it out if you want a lot of recommendations. Yeah. Okay, Lila, shall we stop talking about the end of the world now? Yes, that sounds great. <laughs> and maybe the second half of our show can be an escape from all of that, an escape from climate change and coronavirus. Beautiful. Let's talk about Emer McBride. Tell me what made you want to interview her. I mean, how do you think that she's shifting culture? 
Ooh, well, I mean, firstly, I just love her writing. It's mesmerizing. Mm. And she writes unlike anyone else, I think, who's writing today. But the reason I thought she'd be good for our podcast is that she's not just an experimental writer. As I said at the top, she's actually one of the few writers who has really broken through to the mainstream by doing Mm -hmm. experimental things. You know, readers love her. Book clubs love her. That's interesting that it caught on so much. I mean, what makes her writing radical? On a kind of basic level, her sentences just don't follow the normal rules of grammar. Mm -hmm. You know, if a child um, was learning how to write and they were writing like that, you'd probably, well, actually, you'd think they were a genius, but (laughs) I was going to say you'd probably tell them that's not how to write in English Um, because it's more like a transcription of someone's internal dialogue, like the conversation they're having with themselves when they're walking along in their head. You know, she was compared a lot to James Joyce, which is probably a bit annoying because it's the Irish writer kind of thing. But it is basically like a contemporary updating of that idea of stream of consciousness. Mm. And yeah, the book that she's best known for, I think, is her first book, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. And that very much does that. You know, it traces the inner life of this girl really from when she's inside the womb until adulthood. Wow. And so you kind of actually see the language that she's using changing as she's growing up because Mm -hmm. obviously we acquire words and vocabulary I mean it's a very dark book it's it's about sexual abuse and how that kind of abuse shatters the self and shatters the kind of language that you use and you see like even just like her thought patterns and her internal language just breaking down right under the weight of that experience so that book was extremely popular I just remember the cover of it being everywhere Mm. I'm curious about now. Why now? She's come out with this book, Strange Hotel. What made you want to interview her at this time? Sort of where does somebody like that go next? I think the thing is that she's not repeating what's been so successful for her before. You know, she's not just taking what works and doing that again and doing that again. Mm. The three books that she's written, Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, The Lesser Bohemians, and now this new book, Strange Hotel, as you say, you can tell that each of them is written by Eamon McBride, but actually it's not the same style. And the subject matter is quite different. Um, And she talks about that a bit in the interview. And it's interesting, actually, because it's not explicitly the same girl or woman in each. But I think you can make quite strong thematic connections between them. And in Strange Hotel, we are with this person, if it is the same person, in (laughs) middle age. And she's kind of prickly, Mm -hmm. you know, the unlikable female character is something that I think people have been exploring quite a lot recently you think of Fleabag and things like that yeah that unlikable lead yeah exactly and Strange Hotel is definitely that Um, and I think it's a really interesting literary experiment about how you get inside the head of someone who doesn't really want you to see what the inside of their head looks like you know Mm. they want to keep you out there is something sort of radical about writing about like a middle-aged woman thinking yes (laughs) (laughs) Cool. I can't wait to listen. Let's get into it. Ema McBride, thank you so much for coming on Culture Call. Thank you for having me. So your new novel, Strange Hotel, is set in a series of hotels. At one point, your protagonist, who is this unnamed woman, says to herself or or really kind of thinks to herself, because this is a book that happens primarily in her, in her head, that a hotel room is, quote, a place built for people living in a time out of time. And I was really interested in, in kind of what you mean by that. Well, I suppose I've spent a lot of time in hotel rooms in the last few years on various book tours. And they, after a while, after the initial sort of glamorous, oh, I'm staying in a hotel, passes, <laughs> uh, they all eventually kind of merge into one. And it feels like dead time, hotel time, mm. where you could be anywhere. Um, and you could almost be anyone as well. You have no connection to anything that happens in the, in the room or anything, no say in what it looks like. And so it sort of exists in a different space. Mm. And in memory, it exists in those, all those rooms exist in, in a different space in my head. Yeah. And there's something kind of liberating, but also quite lonely about that kind of anonymity. Yeah. And that dead time, as you put it, that comes with hotels. Yeah. It's a, it's a little like, it's a little like when you, you know, you first leave home, if you go and live in a, in a new city or a new country and nobody knows you. And there's the possibility of being a, a completely different person, except you're not anywhere exciting and you're just in a hotel room all on your own, which says nothing about you. 
um, but in which you can be whatever you like, I suppose. I mean, in all three of your novels that I've read, A Girl is a Half-Form Thing, The Lesser Bohemians, and this one, Strange Hotel, it's like we're reading the inner thoughts of, of a woman um, transcribed on, onto the page. So we're inside her head looking out. I wondered how you arrived at that style. I mean, did you experiment with something sort of more traditional or did you always write in this way? Well, I think uh, when I came to write it, A Girl is a Half-Form Thing, I was interested in experiment and trying to find a new way for readers to experience a narrative. And that kind of internal, and more than a stream of consciousness, really a kind of a stream of life of a, of a physical life going along at the same time as the consciousness and both influencing each other seemed something that I hadn't really read before and, and wanted to investigate. So that's how Girl is a Half-Home Thing came to be. Lesser Bohemians was a sort of continuation of that but then kind of pushing up against a more traditional style of writing in terms of you know the central male character gives a long monologue in a much more traditional mm. spoken way uh, and then when it came to Strange Hotel I, I wanted to do something different again and I suppose this time it felt as though where Girl is a Half from Thing and the Lesser Bohemians was about allowing readers in very close to the experience of, of the protagonist this protagonist isn't really inviting people in. No. And she's actually trying to distance herself from herself. And so it seemed a kind of an interesting way to investigate how language can be used to push people away. Yeah, it seems that she's using language as a way of constructing barriers within her own mind and kind of keeping memories out as much as exploring her own thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not, you're not really being... I, as the writer, I'm not inviting you in to this woman's life. You're really just kind of spying in on her, thinking about herself and trying not to think about herself. Mm. You know, she has these difficult thoughts, but then immediately kind of mocks herself and closes it down or, or ridicules herself or belittles her desire to overanalyze things while at the same time then immediately overanalyzing things or, <laughs> or underanalyzing. You know, it, there's, she's just roiling around mm. inside her own mind all the time. And of course, it's a risk as well, because you think, oh, my God, <laughs> is everyone going to be reading this just thinking, what the hell is happening? Is anything going to happen? I mean, there's mm, well, that's way, something I wanted to ask you about, because it's a very difficult, it's a, it's a fine line. And to get that right, to sort of keep the reader out, but keep them interested and keep them in. Yeah. And of course, I have no idea whether I have succeeded or not. That's what readers will, you know, tell me, I suppose. Um, for me, it it works because I'm I'm just kind of intrigued by her. And I'm also intrigued by how people go about doing boring things when people aren't, no one knows looking, how we mm. live when we are by ourselves um, and who we are and what we think about when we're just on our own and nothing that happens is of any consequence in that moment to anyone else. Because, you know, sometimes it feels as though you're not alive if, if you're not in the middle of doing things. Yeah. Of course you are, you're alive on your own, sitting in your room, doing nothing, thinking, should I take a shower? No, I won't take a shower. <laughs> Can't be bothered. Yeah. <laughs> shall I go down the stairs? No, I won't go down the stairs. I'll just sit here. I'll put on the telly. I won't, you know. And it is a dialogue like that. I mean, in this book, it's very much a dialogue. It feels almost like one part of her brain is talking to another part of her brain sometimes. Yeah, I, I think it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a writer who's ever really been interested in plot you're not going to find any exciting twists and turns anywhere. But I am really interested in story. And, and you know, lives don't have plots. Lives have stories. And I'm really interested in mm. people. And, and so it was, you know, it was a very unusual to experience for me to just go, OK, I'm not going to impose anything. I'm just going to follow her and see what I can discover about her. I mean, it reads more like a character study. Except that you're not given any of the the kind of the details that you would normally be given in a character study. You are not told what she looks like or what class she is or what mm. she does for a living or where she lives. And so it's really it's it's a completely internalized character study. We've been talking about the fact that she's on her own in these kind of strange spaces uh, of of hotel rooms. But she's not always on her own. Sometimes there are men there. It's also a series of one-night stands. And it's interesting because in your 
second book, The Lesser Bohemians, the sex between the young female protagonist and her older male partner is described in detail, and it's very important to the book. Here we have a middle-aged woman having sex with strangers in these hotel rooms, um, kind of as a way of, of coping with, or not coping with, grief and, and loss and, and these feelings that she is trying not to confront. But the sex isn't really described. It's like the camera pulls away almost. What, why is that? Well, you know, I, I think obviously Lesser Bohemians has a lot of sex in it. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel like I've done my sex book. <laughs> and it was, you know, and I really enjoyed writing that book. It was really interesting to try and use sex as a means for exploring character. Mm. But I wasn't really interested in doing that again. I was more interested in the aftermath. She always says something like, you know, it was fine. Everything happened as it, as it, as it should have done. Yeah. In, in both of my, my previous novels, there's a lot of kind of catastrophe sex. There's a lot of difficult things around sex for people um, and difficult experiences either in the moment or with dealing with them afterwards. And, and I was, I kind of wanted to explore a different attitude towards sex and, and not a kind of self-hating. A lot of writing about sex, especially about women having casual sex, is kind of associated with self-hatred and disgust. Mm. And, and I wanted to think about it in a, in a different way, that actually there are lots of middle-aged women who go to hotels who have sex with men who don't hate themselves as a result of it, but aren't particularly interested in seeing those men again. And that that's also just a part of life. And actually what's fraught for her in her life is her past. And mm. The, the person that she's lost and the life that she's, how she's coping in the life after being with someone. And, and the sex is really just a kind of distraction. It's, you know, it's really about her. It's not about sex and it's not really about the men either. Yeah. Their only kind of purpose is, is what they trigger inside her, how they affect her memory. Yeah, it's a book in which the the present feels to her quite sort of pale and washed out and the past is vivid and detailed. And and there was a line in the book where she says, only youth got to dig its claws in. It's like somehow these formative years, the years she, she spent with this person who she's lost, are the ones that really stuck. And the sort of afterwards is this thing which is quite, um, she's not really wanting to live it fully. Yeah, she's not particularly interested in the life that she's living now. It's it, it is very much the life after the life that she wanted to live, um, which is quite a hard thing to write about. Yeah, I think it is a hard thing to write about. But I was also, you know, I really wanted to write a, a middle aged woman mm. because I haven't done that before, and and I am a middle aged woman, so you know, I'm acutely aware of how little good writing there is about middle aged women. There's a lot of romanticization in our culture of youth mm. and of how everything is so intense and important and exciting and what a disappointment everything is afterwards. And I suppose she's battling with that idea. We've talked a little bit about your previous books, A Girl as a Half-Formed Thing and The Lesser Bohemians. And A Girl as a Half-Formed Thing, I think I'm right in saying you wrote very quickly in six months, was yeah, it? Right, yeah. Um, but then couldn't find a publisher, so sort of put it to one side. Hmm. Started work on Lesser Bohemians, spent nine years <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> writing that one. Yeah. And then did find a publisher for Girl. And then sort of a few years later, The Lesser Bohemians was published. Both of them won lots of awards, uh, much kind of critical acclaim, a big following amongst just ordinary readers as well. And so am I right in thinking that this is the first book that you've written against the backdrop of that professional success? Yes, the first book I've written since I had a career <laughs> as a writer. <laughs> um, and so has that been different? Yeah, it was very different. And it wasn't actually the book that I was planning to write next. But I was kind of doing other things. I was uh, working on a screenplay and I had a fellowship at the Beckett Centre. And I had thought that would be my my year and I would be busily going between those two things. But then little gaps started to show up. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks here or there I was waiting for notes or something or other. And I just sat and started to write. So it was it was nice to write something where there was no pressure 
I mean, obviously, finishing Lesser Bohemians against the backdrop of Girl coming out and being a success, was, mm. there was a lot of pressure attached to that. Um, but Strange Hotel, though, no one, no one knew I was writing it. I didn't even know I was writing it until it was done. You know, I didn't sell it. There was no advance. There was nothing. I just worked away and did it by myself. And it, I wrote it over the course of a year, but it, all in all, it was about three months' work, I think. So it was nice to just write, mm. actually to write almost like the way that I wrote Girl, kind of in private and quiet with nobody knowing. Is that how you like to write? It is my preferred way to write. Um, I think writing to a deadline is hard. For a novel, that's very hard. I wanted to ask you a bit about physical sensation and the body. Is is the life of the body something that you're interested in, in kind of writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's really there in the in the first two books and it's it's here as well. Um although there's also I think there's a lot more neurosis about uh the life of the body in this. I think when you're in, in those hotel rooms where you're kind of left alone with your body, where kind of society isn't staring in telling you that your stomach's too fat or your eyebrows aren't plucked or whatever and you're kind of just it's just you on your own with no one looking at you and so she kind of looks at herself and I like the way that she looks at herself that she's more humane towards herself than society tends to be towards women that age you know it's hard getting older because everyone's picking Mm. all the time everyone's got an opinion and everyone's having a go and everyone the expectation of what you're supposed to do in order to look like you're taking care of yourself, whatever the hell that is supposed to mean, is, you know, tiring. It can be tiring if you if you don't kind of fob it off. Have you found that? Yeah, I I, I mean, I, I've never particularly been someone who was preoccupied with her looks. I think it's one of the mercies of being a writer is nobody <laughs> has a right to say what <laughs> I should look like or not. But it's there. I mean, it's in the culture all around and all the time. And... Uh, and I do feel very aggrieved by the amount of time I'm supposed to waste on these matters. So what it must be like for women who are really, you know, have been reared to be very pressured about their looks. I can't imagine what that's like for them. Well, I was thinking also because um, because you trained as an actor and as an actor, how you look and your body, those are your your tools. I mean, that that is what... Yeah, absolutely. Is. And, you know, and I remember even, you know, being at drama school at 17, 18 and even at that time being very kind of perplexed when I would see someone sitting with a cream egg going, oh, should I eat it? Should I not eat it? <laughs> you know, my feeling was, well, eat, eat the egg, <laughs> just eat the cream egg. If you want it, just eat it. But the reality is, if you're a young female actor, that you are being assessed on your looks and your, yeah, of course. you know, casting directors are looking for a certain thing. Yeah, they absolutely are. And and I think there there has been some headway made towards allowing women to just look like women and girls to just look like girls, but not enough. Absolutely not enough. And I think a lot about it now, about how bored I am by how incredibly thin everyone is all the time. <laughs> And going back to acting, why are you a writer now and not an actor? Oh, I think it's funny. I I think that when I was young, I made a confusion between language and acting. That I was always very, very interested in language and loved to think about lines and learn lines. And particularly, of course, then loved Shakespeare and Restoration and and plays where there was a lot of very rich language. Also, you know, natural tendency to be a show off I think, <laughs> at that age made me think that I should go on the stage. But uh, I think I realised quite early on that I wasn't interested in being an interpreter. I was really interested in writing the tune and making everyone else dance. You know, being a novelist is, it's kind of the control freaks nirvana <laughs> um, of a job. It was a way of thinking about the world, of understanding what I thought about the world. And I often find that I don't know how to answer a question until I've written about it. And there just wasn't enough thinking time in acting. And how how do you think that acting and the acting training has affected the way that you've approached writing? Oh, hugely. I think 
you know, the other overlap between acting and writing for me is the interesting character that's that has remained in in my writing and in the way that it drew me to to acting, uh, and that kind of hardcore method Stanislavski training that I had at Drama Centre really taught me how to think about people, about what makes them and what drives them and what you need to include in order to understand them, to really understand them in a in a very truthful way. Can you say a bit about what that kind of training, what that method training is? Well, a lot of it was searching inside yourself for various triggers, things that, you know, provoke particular reactions in you that might be quite different to what the character is experiencing, but you need to access that particular reaction at that particular time. So things like that, things like the inner life and the character thoughts, which was really about, you know, when I'm sitting talking to you, I'm also trying to think of the answer to the question. I'm also thinking that, you know, my nose is a bit itchy. I wonder if my husband got the, you know, the dinner in. I'm thinking about all of these different things mm. all at once but I'm still just here talking to you that's how we live our lives mm. it's a kind of mess of things and we're just always trying to prioritize all of that is going on at one time and I suppose I really wanted to make language perform those tasks and so I think of my writing as kind of method writing it's really trying to encapsulate all the aspects of life which mm. is why the sentences are often not particularly linear or grammatical. And in a way with Strange Hotel, I was kind of stepping away from that. Not that the, all of those things weren't still happening, but that she was distancing herself from any kind of immediacy mm. in life. I think when we're young, we allow life in in much more unfiltered way. We allow experience to happen to us. We allow things to just come in. Whereas when we're older, we're much less prone to impulse mm. and much more certain of ourselves. Maybe there's something that's more kind of wary about middle age as well because bad things have happened. Yeah, but at the same time, lots of terrible things happen to people when they're young mm. as well. But of course, in as you get older, you expect terrible things to happen in a way you kind of understand the places where pain lies in middle age mm. in a way that maybe you don't when you're young. I was wondering whether that pain and specifically grief is something that's quite hard to write well about. I think it is hard to write about because it's not terribly sexy. It's not necessarily something that people want to think about. And it's also kind of unquantifiable because because we don't talk a lot about grief. We also don't talk about the fact that there are lots of different types of grief. Mm. Everyone knows that it's terrible to lose a child and older people understand what it is to lose a parent. But there are kind of odd griefs mm. as well, like griefs of what do you do if your ex-husband dies? Or how do you respond to someone who's lost their brother when they're, you know, older? I'm I'm interested in what you were saying about all these different types of of grief. Um, your brother died when you were very young um, and I think Girl is dedicated to him. That's right. Um, and and you were saying that sort of writing is a way of thinking through things for you and it feels like grief is something that's in your books but in quite different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that I've been aware of from very early on in my life. You know, my father died when I was eight and then my brother when I was 22 and so I never had that phase of feeling young and invincible, like death was far away. Death has always been very close to me and something that I've been aware of from very early on in my life and that I've thought about a lot. And obviously grief and how grief changes over the years is, you know, quite interesting to me as well. That In the, in the initial moment where you think you won't survive it. And then later when you do survive it and and the almost like survivor's guilt that you can have mm. for being the one who got to to survive, who got got to stay behind is, you know, yeah, again, was something that I, I returned to in, in Strange Hotel. It's, it's definitely there that 
where she talks about, you know, missing him, but also missing the part of herself that thought she would never learn to live without him. Yeah, it's interesting because the the real freshness of of grief that we, we don't see her in that moment. She talks about, I think, being irradiated by pain, which feels so um, strong and, and immediate. But actually how she's feeling when we meet her as, a, as readers is is later on, as you say, it's kind of how do you feel after that initial yeah. phase? Yeah, and I think I've always been very interested in what happens next. You know, even when I was a child, it used to torture me at the end of Gone with the Wind. Like, what happened next? <laughs> Did he give a damn again eventually? You know, and and I suppose it's natural that that also extends to the idea of, of grief. A final question. In Strange Hotel, uh, your protagonist is is so hard on herself. She's sort of constantly reprimanding herself and trying to compartmentalise her life, trying to distance herself from her feelings and her desires. And that made me feel kind of more tender towards her. And I wondered whether you felt tender towards her as your literary creation. Did you want things to be okay for her? Um, Well, you know, the problem for me is that I always like torturing my characters. (laughs) I like to make everything as hard for them as possible. You know, it's kind of wards off evil for me doing that to them. <laughs> um, I suppose what I I like about her, what I wanted for her, was to just put her in the place where she had to make a decision. Because she spent a long time not making, really making decisions, not big decisions. And I suppose I just wanted to push very hard and kind of place her in a point where she just suddenly wasn't able to argue herself out of making a decision anymore. And whichever decision that she makes at the end of the book, she has to kind of own it. Ema, thank you so much. Thank you. Grizz. I really loved getting to know Emer McBride <laughs> through that interview. What struck me most is that she's doing something risky with her books. Mm. And I thought that that was pretty badass. By definition, we talk to people who are taking risks and not playing by the rules mm. on this podcast. I mean, Ben Lerner comes to mind, Mark Bradford, George the Poet. Yeah. Um, even Caitlin Prest, who's explicitly grappling with playing with the rules and not playing with the rules, what that means in her work. But Emer McBride is not people-pleasing. She's not trying to please us. She's trying something new. Yeah. And I liked that. And it's interesting because her character is not people-pleasing. Right. I liked the way she spoke about that. You know, there's something quite unapologetic about the character. And for example, the way that she's just having sex with these men and not particularly feeling bad about it. You know, she's not doing the things that you're supposed to do as a woman, I guess, this character. Yeah. The the other thing that I liked that you discussed is just what it means to have a book that's exploring the way we think. Mm. I don't know if you remember, but recently uh, the this whole this piece went viral online uh, about whether we think in internal monologues or not. It was called Today I Learned That Not Everyone Has an Internal Monologue and It Has Ruined My Day. <laughs> um, and it basically was like asking the question, sort of like that dress, is it blue or is it gold? It was like, do you think in complete sentences or do you think in, in fragments or pictures or, oh. or sort of sounds? Can I ask you whether you think in fragments or complete sentences? Or do you know? I don't even know if it's like a very good question because I think like sure consciously I think in full sentences I do like I do talk to myself a lot in my head mm. um, but I also have fragments of thoughts all the time and a lot of unconscious thoughts yeah. and those do not come up in sentences obviously so it's I think for everybody it's probably a combination but who knows I did think it was interesting that it blows our minds the idea that people think differently yeah and I think that's exactly the appeal of Emma McBride's books, you know, that you're Mm. getting inside someone else's internal monologue. And actually, I think, like, in all three of the books that I've read of hers, and definitely in Strange Hotel, it took me, like, 15 pages or so to actually get into it. I think I had to go back and start again because you need to sort of learn how that person's internal language works. Like, what's the grammar of the sentences? How are they constructed? Mm -hmm. Once you get the hang of that, then suddenly you're in and you've got it. Right. But 
until you get to that point, I think it can be quite disorientating because we do all have these different ways of thinking. Right. And the other thing I was wondering around this is, is this question actually new? You said that Emer McBride is compared often to James Joyce. Mm. I mean, he was writing 100 years ago. Yeah. Maybe this isn't really as new as we're acting like it is. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, stream of consciousness is not new. Modernism was 100 years ago. But Emer McBride isn't James Joyce and she's doing something that's different, I think. Um, You know, it's not just stream of consciousness. It's actually a lot about the unconscious. It's a lot about the life of the body, like she said in the interview. She's taking that idea and taking it a step further, I think. But it is interesting because I do look back and I studied some of this stuff at university, the, the modernists, people like Virginia Woolf as well. And when I was reading their work as a student, I did feel like actually... I don't know that, that this is that much less radical than things which are being written now. Right. Eve McBride is, is pretty unusual as a writer because she really is investigating the kind of inner workings of the mind and of the body. And not that many novelists are doing that. And I think that's why I really like her work. Cool. Yeah, it was a great interview. Thank you for sharing Eve McBride with us. That's it for this week. Next week's guest is the American playwright Jeremy O'Harris. He wrote Slave Play, which was a massive hit in New York. And Lila, you saw it on Broadway, right? I did. It was excellent. And it was also very controversial. So there's lots to talk about with him. Um, He's now in London. He's about to open a play called Daddy. Um, And if you want to find out more about him, we'll leave some links in our show notes. We will also link to the episode where I recommend Slave Play so you can hear a little bit more about it. I saw it at the height of its buzz and it had a big impact on Broadway, really. So I'm very excited that we're having him on the show. Yes, it's a peak transatlantic moment for us. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Let us know how you're doing in this strange time of self-isolation and pandemics. You know, it's okay to find it weird. We certainly are. We would love to know if and how you are using culture to help you deal with it. Come and say hi on Twitter. You can find the podcast at FT Culture Call, or you can email us at culturecall at ft.com. And again, we'd love for you to take time to fill out our survey. You can find it at ft.com slash culturecallsurvey. That is ft.com slash culturecallsurvey. <laughs> if you like what you hear, you also should share this with your friends. We would be very grateful. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners discover our show. We will both be back in two weeks' time. Until then, we've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Mari brown from Under a Duvet. <laughs> Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood. And our music is composed by Fatim. I haven't left the house for so long. I don't know. I feel a bit like skinless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vulnerable. <laughs> skinless. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.